Section 19 of English Costume. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diana Meilinger. English Costume by Dion Clayton Calthrope. Section 19. Edward V reigned two months, April and June, 1487, and Richard III reigned two years. 1483 to 1485. Born 1450, married 1473, Anne Neville. The Man. Fashion's pulse beat very weak in the spring of 1483. More attuned to the pipes of faith were the black cloaks of conspirators and the measured tread of soft shoot feet than lute and dance of airy millinery. The axe of the executioner soiled many white shirts and dreadful forebodings fluttered the dovecotes of high-hinned ladies. The old order was dying. Medievalism, which made the last spluttering flame in the next reign, was now burnt low, and was saving for that last effort. When Richard married Anne Neville, in the same year was Raphael born in Italy. Literature was beginning, thought was beginning. Many of the great spirits of the Renaissance were alive and working in Italy. The very trend of clothes showed something vaguely different, something which shows, however, that the foundations of the world were being shaken, so shaken, that men and women, coming out of the gloom of the fourteenth century through the half-light of the fifteenth, saw the first signs of a new day, the first show of spring, and, with a perversity or an eagerness to meet the coming day, they began to change their clothes. It is in this reign of Richard III that we get, for the men, a hint of the peculiar magnificence of the first years of the sixteenth century. We get the first flush of those wonderful patterns which are used by Memlin and Holbein, those variations of the pineapple pattern, and of that peculiar convention which is traceable in the outline of the Tudor rose. The men, at first sight, do not appear very different to the men of Edward IV's time. They have the long hair, the general clean-shaven faces, open-breasted tunics, and full-plated skirts. But, as a rule, the man, peculiar to his time, the clothes post of his age, has discarded the tall peaked hat, and is almost always dressed in the black velvet, stiff brimmed hat. The pleated skirt to his tunic has grown longer, and his purse has grown larger. The sleeves are tighter, and the old tunic with the split, hanging sleeves has grown fuller, longer, and has become an overcoat, being now open all the way down. You will see that the neck of the tunic is cut very low and that you may see above it, above the black velvet with which it is so often bound, the rich colour or fine material of an undergarment, a sort of waistcoat, and yet again above that, the straight top of a finely pleated white shirt. Sometimes the sleeves of the tunic will be white, and when the arm is flung up in gesticulation, the baggy white shirt, tight buttoned at the wrist, will show. Instead of the overcoat with the hanging sleeves, you will find a very plain cut overcoat, with sleeves comfortably wide, and with wide plain lapels to the collar. It is cut wide enough in the back to allow for the spread of the tunic. Black velvet is becoming a very fashionable trimming, and will be seen as a border or as undervest, to show between the shirt and the tunic. No clothes of the last reign will be incongruous in this. The very short tunics, which expose the codpiece, the split-sleeve tunic, all the variations I have described. Judges walk about, looking like gentlemen of the time of Richard II. A judge wears a long loose gown, with wide sleeves, 
from out of which appear the sleeves of his under tunic, buttoned from elbow to wrist. He wears a cloak with a hood, the cloak split up the right side, and fastened by three buttons upon the right shoulder. The doctor is in very plain, ample gown, with a cape over his shoulders and a small round cap on his head. His gown is not bound at the waist. The blunt shoes have come into fashion, and with this the old long-peaked shoe dies forever. Common sense will show you that the gentlemen who had leisure to hunt in these days did not wear their most foppish garments, that the tunics were plain, the boots high, the cloaks of strong material. They wore a hunting hat, with a long peak over the eyes, and a little peak over the neck at the back. A broad band passed under the chin, and, buttoning on to the either side of the hat, kept it in place. The peasant wore a loose tunic, often open-breasted, and laced across. He had a belt about his waist, a hood over his head, and often a broad-brimmed Noah's Ark hat over his hood. His slops, or loose trousers, were tied below the knee and at the ankles. A shepherd would stick his pipe in his belt, so that he might march before his flock, piping them into the fold. To sum up, you must picture a man in a dress of Edward the Fourth's time, modified, or rather expanded, or expanding into the costume of Henry the Seventh's time, a reign, in fact, which hardly has a distinct costume to itself, that is, for the man, but has a hand stretched out to two centuries, the fifteenth and the sixteenth. Yet, if I have shown the man to you as I myself can see him, he is different from his father in 1461, and will change a great deal before 1500. THE WOMEN Here we are at the end of an epoch, at the close of a costume period, at one of those curious final dates in a history of clothes which says that within a year or so the women of one time will look hopelessly old-fashioned and queer to the modern woman. Except for the peculiar sponge-bag turban, which had a few years of life in it, the woman in Henry the Seventh's reign would look back at this time and smile, and the young woman would laugh at the old ideas of beauty. The river of time runs under many bridges, and it would seem that the arches were low to the bridge of fashion in 1483, and the steeple hat was lowered to prevent contact with them. The correct angle of 45 degrees changed into a right angle. The steeple hat, the hennin, came toppling down, and an embroidered bonnet, perched right on the back of the head, came into vogue. It is this bonnet which gives, from our point of view, distinction to the rain. It was a definite fashion, a distinct halt. It had travelled along the years of the fourteenth century, from the wimple and the horns, and the stiff turbans, and the boxes of stiffened cloth of gold. It had languished in the call, and blossomed in the huge, wimple-covered horns. It had shot up in the hennin, and now it gave, as its last transformation, this bonnet at the back of the head, with the stiff wimple stretched upon wires. Soon was to come the diamond-shaped headdress, and after that the birth of hair as a beauty. In this case the hair was drawn as tightly as possible away from the forehead, and at the forehead the smaller hairs were plucked away. Even eyebrows were a little out of fashion. Then this cylindrical bonnet was placed at the back of the head, 
with its wings of thin linen stiffly sewn or propped on wires. These wires were generally of a V-shape, the V-point at the forehead. On some occasions two straight wires came out on either side of the face in addition to the V, and so made two wings on either side of the face and two wings over the back of the head. It is more easy to describe through means of the drawings, and the reader will soon see what bend to give to the wires in order that the wings may be properly held out. Beyond this headdress there was very little alteration in the lady's dress since the previous reign. The skirts were full, the waist was high, but not absurdly so. The band round the dress was broad, the sleeves were tight, and the cuffs, often of fur, were folded back to a good depth. The neck opening of the dress varied, as did that of the previous reign. But whereas the most fashionable opening was then from neck to waist, this reign gave more liking to a higher corsage, over the top of which a narrow piece of stuff showed, often of black velvet. We may safely assume that the ladies followed the men in the matter of broad shoes. For a time the old fashion of the long-tongued belt came in, and we see instances of such belts being worn with the tongue reaching nearly to the feet tipped with a metal ornament. Not until night did these ladies discard their winged head erections, not until the streets were dark, and the brass basins swinging from the barber's poles shone but dimly, and the tailors no longer sat, cross-legged, on the benches in their shop-fronts. Then might my lady uncover her head, and talk, in company with my lord, over the strange new stories of Prester John and of the wandering Jew. Then, at her proper time, she would go to her rest and sleep soundly beneath her embroidered quilt, under the protection of the saints, whose pictures she has sewn into the corners of it. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John bless the bed that she lies on. So we come to an end of a second series of dates, from the first Edward to the third Richard, and we leave them to come to the Tudors and their follies and fantastics. We leave an age that is quaint, rich, and yet fairly simple, to come to an age of padded hips and farthingales, monstrous ruffs, knee-breeks, rag-stuffed trunks, and high-heeled shoes. With the drawings and text you should be able to people a vast world of figures, dating from the middle of the 13th century, 1272, to nearly the end of the 15th. 1485, and if you allow ordinary horse sense to have play, you will be able to people your world with correctly dressed figures in the true inspiration of their time. You cannot disassociate the man from his tailor. His clothes must appeal to you, historically and soulfully, as an outward and visible sign to the graces and vices of his age and times. End of section 19